I'm Richard Herring. This is my Leicester Square Theatre podcast. You're about to listen to the audio version of this show, but you can get the video version from www.gofasterstripe.com slash podcasts. It costs a little bit of money, but all that money will be ploughed back in to making more comedy shows. Uh, we're not part of a massive empire of business. It's just uh, us, me and Chris Evans from Go Faster Stripe and Ben Walker, a producer, just putting this up together ourselves. So if you can pay a tiny amount towards this, that will help us fund future and more exciting projects. It's just £3.50 per episode or £15 for the whole series of at least seven podcasts that will be, uh, including Stephen Fry from last week, Chris Addison and Russell Brand will be the guests next week. So it's well worth the money. So if you want to pay us back a little bit for these free podcasts, that would be lovely if you even just downloaded one of them. But if you don't want to, you don't think you should pay for stuff, you know, it's only the price of a coffee then go on, carry on listening for free. But if you are listening for free, it'd be terrific if you would spread the news of this podcast to your friends and let them listen in too. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen... Oh, no, that wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Here's a man who can make stars open up even better than Piers Morgan. It's Richard Herring. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. That's what the squares call it. Or as all the cool kids are calling it, Rahelestapur. Wow, it's a pretty exciting week for the podcast last week. Well, it was amazing. Do you see, do you listen to it? See, it was, uh, Stephen Fry was on, and he, the shocking admission that he'd never read The Hobbit. Oh, no, I don't know, I've never... I haven't really been following the news, so I don't know if anything's... Uh, there's, there's a man here, and there's our nuclear physicist, David, I think, is wearing an I Love London hat in a... <laughs> is a tribute to uh, an audience member from the first half last week. It's been pretty, pretty extraordinary, uh, everything that went on, getting on the news uh, all around the world. It was, I was up in Glasgow uh, and doing a radio show, and I kind of came out and sort of saw Eamon Holmes talking about me and stuff, well not so much about me, but it was, it, well, I'd like to thank everyone who came last week who didn't uh, go and blab about it straight away, uh, you could probably have made £200 selling that to the papers before it came out, uh, so thank you for that, and no one even tweeted about it, so you're a fantastic audience, thank you for that, and uh, we'll see, it's, it's a bit of pressure on though, doesn't it, what am I going to, how am I going to get in the news this week, I may have to kill somebody in the audience to get in, get in this week, we'll just have a quick, uh, chat with the, the audience because we haven't done it. There's a lady here which is quite a nice, quite, like, quite a nice looking lady. Oh, there you go. What's, what's your name? Rosie. Rosie? Yes. That's very posh. Yes, it was Rosie. <laughs> Came out all rosy. Um, what do you do for a living, Rosie? You're a management consultant, Miss Frank. It's like very well spoken. It's very nice. It's just a way to uh, perv on you and just film you. <laughs> this isn't even for the show. I'm just going to take this home. Oh no, you spoil it. Oh, that's put me right off my stroke. That's a way just to make it last a bit longer. Oh. Um, what, do, what does it involve? Management consulting. What does that involve? Not a lot. Bullshitting. So you might not even be a management consultant. You're very good at it, though, so you should be. Uh, so, come on, that was worth more than that. Uh, but uh, uh, I was in, I was coming back from Glasgow uh, and um, in, the, in the airport, I, I was looking at magazines. I was looking at a magazine because I knew there was an interview with uh, Russell Brand, who's going to be on the show next week. It's very exciting. Uh, so I was looking for his, the magazine that was talking to him, but then I found a magazine there. In, the, in Smith's at the airport called Railways and the Holocaust, which uh, 
It's quite a specific Venn diagram, isn't it? Those two. Are you interested in railways? Yeah, I like railways. Do you like the Holocaust? I like the Holocaust too. We've got the magazine for you. It's railways and the whole, a very specific readership. I'm hoping they'll bring out the speedboats and the civil war in Rwanda. That is what I'm hoping for. Or tuk-tuks and the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs. You know, I think just two things. Even if you take it at face value, I think it's like railways of the Holocaust, right? That's what, that's what they were probably aiming for with that type. But even that's quite an odd thing to do a magazine about. The, the specifically, yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not interested in anything else in the Holocaust apart from the railways. I'm interested in what gauge trains took the people to the concentration camps. It's, well, who is this aimed at? It's an incredible, uh, it's, it's like kind of doing a magazine based on the bike that Lee Harvey Oswald cycled to the book depository. And it's, it's, uh, it's the subtitle is The Trains That Shamed the World. Like it was the train's fault that this happened. Other trains are going, oh, I'm embarrassed. Thomas the Tank Engine presumably going, oh, I'm, I'm embarrassed about those trains. They should have, they should have refused to take those people. So I um, enjoyed that. So that's a real magazine. I should have uh, bought a copy so I could have proven it to you and showed you. Uh, but that's just not the kind of guy I am. Oh, and I should remember, I just want to say thank you to Aaron Cleland, who I believe lives in Singapore, who has made a fantastically large donation to Scope. Uh, and if you do the same thing, I will announce you your name on the podcast as well. I was going to get Stephen Fry to say his name last week, which would have been much better, wouldn't it, than me just saying it now. Uh, but never mind. Look, we're going to crack straight on with the show. We've got two shows we're doing tonight. Uh, you at home will be watching. You can watch the uh, second one uh, uh, a little bit later in the week if you're getting this straight away. So uh, I'm very, very excited uh, to have this guest. She's one of my favourite people on TV. Will you please welcome a woman who has been described as the best-known classicist in the country? <laughs> given that she's the only one anyone has ever heard of. Will you please welcome Mary Beard, ladies and gentlemen. Mary, Mary Beard. She's straight in on the wine. Why not? <laughs> Don't be intimidated by my Chortle Award. Mary, that is... I can't wait for John Lloyd to see that my two awards is going to be shitting himself, would not it? That is a Sony Bronze Award. I've been carrying that around my bag, the Sony Bronze Award. It's, look, it started rubbing off. Can you see that? You can see the bronze. I thought that was made of real bronze. I thought that would last forever. That's going to be all the time. You see those big holes in it? Most useless load of shit, innit? So, uh, look, it's because um, you're, you're, you're a much more, um, we, you know, we've got an intellectual one. I don't want to, I think we should change the tone. <laughs> of, the, of the podcast, so I've got different questions for you. We're going to go quite historical, quite intellectual. Oh, um, and uh, so, my first question is: Did Julius Caesar ever try to suck his own cock? Is that, <laughs> so that's an interesting. It is an interesting uh, historical question. All Romans did. All Romans did. <laughs> How do you know? Have you got evidence? Well, it's like the way you know. I, it, for women, this is quite difficult. The, the, the equivalent for a woman yes. is when they see their kid, aged you know, 18 months, sucking its toe. Every mother in the country goes up to the bedroom, sits down and sees if they can still do it. Right? <laughs> and usually they can with child number one. By child number two or three, um, they've gone off a bit. And so 
my fantasy is, because it's one of the ways that you can take the Romans down a peg or two, you know, you can kind of undress them, take their togas off, is that, of course, every Roman tried to right. suck their own cock. They're always talking about yeah. cock sucking all over the place, so I expect th- they did. Do you think that's why Julius Caesar said, et tu brute? That's why he was going, oh, et tu brute. <laughs> you know, I thought it was just me, but everyone's... You Maybe, you know, they discovered Julius Caesar's skeleton, you know, all bent round and stuff, because Richard III's was a bit, wasn't it? I think Richard III might have been having a crack at it, and that's just, just as he was going. I am going to be a pedant yes. at this point and say Julius Caesar never said et tu brute. Oh. <laughs> I shall I tell you what he said? Yeah, do tell me. I know Natalie Haynes goes on about this all the time. But I've never yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. Go on, she, but she learned it from me. <laughs> she did. <laughs> Literally. Uh, he says, Kai Su Technon which is Greek for you too, my child. Mm. And it was always thought to be a very clever dying joke because rumours had it that Brutus was the illegitimate son Mm. of Julius Caesar. So it was not just assassination, it was patricide. Wow. So he's always thinking, that's what I'm kind of thinking when I'm doing comedy sometimes, if someone shoots me or something on stage and go, now that's a heckle, just as I'm dying, you kind of think, are you prepared? (laughs) He was sort of prepared. Caesar was prepared. He had a lot. Why was he speaking Greek if he was Roman? What was wrong with him? But he was showing off. Okay. <laughs> Lucky someone understood and could write it down. It's always speaking Roman. That is my advice uh, to you. So um, I, I've been to see the uh, Pompeii exhibition at the uh, British Museum, which is fantastic. It's about Herculaneum and life and death in Herculaneum and Pompeii, which you are a part. You are, you have uh, you're on the audio guide. I'm on the audio guide helps. talking about cocksucking. You are, yeah. That's <laughs> why I thought you were a perfect guest to get in. Now, I think there's quite a few remarkable things uh, at the, uh, on the exhibitions, but my favourite uh, one uh, that I enjoyed the most was um, the picture of the... Well, no, it's a sculpture of Pan uh, having sex with a goat. That's uh, just there. You can see it. This was discovered in a garden, I think, in Pompeii or Herculaneum. The garden remember. outside Herculaneum, and it's... It alone is worth going to the... Yeah, that's right, get you it. See, get it. You can see his actual that's cock right. going into the yes, goat there. Yes, you can. That's the goat. It's Pan. It was half goat, so it's not as dirty as you think. No, it's, 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 sort it's of, half goat shagging full goat. Yeah, it's and it's quite... Gorgeous. I think it's quite tender that he's sort of holding on to the goat's beard <laughs> as he's doing it. And that could, I mean, that could be tender. It could, it's hard to tell because it's not moving. You know, it could be tugging it hard. That is rude. If you're going to have sex with a goat, be tender. That's my advice. But what I enjoyed about this particularly was uh, I was looking, we were looking, my wife and I were looking around this fantastic exhibition at the same time as a school party were going around and these, these like basically 10 year old boys, one of them saw this and then just, he couldn't believe what he had just seen. And like he thought he hadn't seen it and then he called over his friend who then walked over and was so terrified by what he knew. He knew what he was doing was wrong and he kind of was almost backing away as he was because he was yeah, no, and all his friends were laughing at it it was amazing it, it's the best advert for classics that there's <laughs> been in this country what's, what's um, going on with many that long with year. Pan having sex with a goat in someone's garden well um, the British Museum clearly think there is a bit wrong because they have a little health warning did you notice the health warning which said I could only know, see the cop going into the, the, the well, goat's cloaca how do had you looked more carefully, you would have seen that there was notice outside saying some people might find this a little upsetting, you know. Um, 
um, and uh, you know, adults only and that kind of thing, which yeah. draws every kid to it. You know, <laughs> absolutely, like um, you know, magnet. Um, I think it's difficult because I think part of me wants to say, look. Um, this Jolly Will is upsetting, isn't it? If anybody can go into an exhibition and look at a sculpture of Pan shagging a goat and say, oh, that was, you know, it was all right, wasn't it? You know, nothing, nothing special there. You know, they're kidding themselves. Yeah. Obviously, they're kidding themselves. But then you look at it again and you think, um, this was a really good ancient joke, wasn't it? You know, somebody, the sculpture sat down and said, right, how do we imagine? We know that Pan, the, point, the important thing about Pan in the ancient world is he'll shag anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he'll shag slaves or trees or goats or anything. So trees? He's, trees, yes. Okay. If, if all living creatures are lacking, he'll do trees, anything. That's what you know about Pan. You know, he is utterly voracious. So then you say, if you're this rather classy sculptor, and it is rather nice, you know, it's very elegantly done, and you can still see the bits of paint on his beard, you know, holding. You say, so how do we think Pan would have shagged a goat, right? And of course, we all know that, you know, that goat shagging only happens from behind, you know. But what this guy has done is shown Pan shagging the goat in a missionary position. <laughs> so it's not just he's holding onto the beer, but the kind of little hooves are sort of you know, against the, you know, the front hooves against the shoulders. Yeah. And, the, and the little girl has got this great beatific smile on her face. <laughs> and you think, this is, this is something really, this is more extraordinary than what you think it is. This is consensual bestiality <laughs> in the missionary position done you know actually because somebody you know these romans were clever enough to know what they were doing on this you know and this is actually it's found in the garden of a great roman villa owned as we know by an epicurean philosopher because we found hundreds and hundreds of papyrus rolls of epicurean philosophy now epicurean philosophy had one central question to it which is what is pleasure right now at some point there's a you know there's a really big joke here isn't there because in the garden of the house of the man who's really thinking about what pleasure is we've sort of now defined pleasure as shagging a goat in the missionary position um, with smiles, smiles all round. Yeah. <laughs> Are most archaeologists kind of getting into it in the hope of finding some ancient pornography that they can? Is that, is that the way? Going, yeah, we found another one. <laughs> He's doing a goat. Someone must have posed for this. It's kind of like so, you know, they really, they really thought it through. No, go- no goats were killed in the making of this sculpture. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> well, it's very well worth going uh, having a look if you uh, if you want to see that. I've got um, last week. Uh, I, sp- I spoke to Stephen Fry and. Um, uh, I-, I had questions from uh, Ben Evans, the the son of uh, Chris Evans. Not that one. Uh, no, not the one from the Avengers. Uh, the guy who directs uh, and works for Go Faster Stripe and owns Go Faster Stripe. Uh, I should point out that Ben Evans, uh, he did ask the question that got the uh, amazing response from Stephen Fry, though his whole class had put these questions together. He wanted to make it clear uh, now he's in the new, he got in the paper, <laughs> in the South Wales local paper. Uh, you know, it's pointless, no one can read it, but it's, it's kind of good. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, so uh, he's, he's asked him, him and his classmates have asked some questions. Uh, Sadie Evans uh, asked, so I'm guessing some kind of relation uh, to Ben Evans. Uh, what is, it might not be, it's Wales, isn't it? Uh, so there we go. Uh, what, is, what is I hate you in Latin, I want to say it to my brother? <laughs> that is the question for you. Phew. I can answer that one. Yeah. Usually when people say, what is something in Latin, you think, oh, God, I can't remember the word. This is simple. Yeah. It is te-odi. Te-odi. That sounds quite good. It's like, like Toadie from Neighbours. Te-odi. Yeah. Was, was that just it was a clever joke in Neighbours? They just hated that. He was a hateful guy, wasn't he? <laughs> Rebecca, what was his name? Jared Rebecca. <laughs> Fucking hell, how did I remember that? Uh, <laughs> Toadfish, Jared Rebecca. Hope that goes round South Wales and gets into the paper. <laughs> Toadie. So yeah, there you go. So that hasn't that hasn't seemed to got us in the papers this time. I don't know. I'm guessing. We'll see. Uh, there are a couple more questions. Oh, no. I'll, ask ben, I'll ask Ben Evans one. Um, what do you think is the most innovative thing the Romans came up with or did after the, the thing with oh, the, the goats? Panel of goats. <laughs> <sighs> Well, as you can also see this in the British Museum, actually. Oh, yeah. It's a, a, bit, a bit more of a plug for the British Museum. You um, don't get any of the money from the British Museum, do you? Yeah. Do, you get, do they let you keep something? I can't remember going, they should, like, once a year, they should let everyone go around and take one thing home with them. That's what, <laughs> if you're a member, you can have one thing. When I was on Desert Island Discs, and I, uh, they asked what your, you know, luxury was going to be, yeah. I chose the old marbles. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, if you really want real intriguing and pointless innovation, then I think it has to go, the prize has to go to the, the Dormouse Fattener, right? Oh, yes. Now, now, in the British Museum, there's this great object, great sort of pot about, well, a couple of foot high. Um, and it really is connected with the supposed Roman habit of eating Dormice as a delicacy. And what this pot is, is a place for keeping them and fattening them up before they get on the table. And from the outside, it looks completely normal, except it's got lots of little holes in it, um, which is to bring the air in. See, Richard's got it here, you know? But inside, so most people will go to the exhibition, they will not give this pot a second look, but it really is worth it because it's got a whole load of runs around the inside and it's got two little feeding dishes at the top. And you have to imagine that, that dormice are not stupid so that without a top it would, they would have escaped. There was a little lid to go on. And the idea is that you put the dormice in there, you give them their exercise runs and then you fill up the little food trays with you know, grapes or something, or whatever ancient dormice ate, and you wait till they're fat enough to eat. And what I think is great about that is it's, you know, people think about the Romans as being fantastically sensible and there's kind of bridges and hypercourts and engineering and roads. You know, actually, you know, where quite a lot of that ingenuity is going is into something that's completely bonkers <laughs> as a dormouse fanner. And, you know, the idea that we can now see it in London temporarily, there's very, very few of these dormice right. fatteners survive. They're very rare objects, extremely precious. <laughs> they do, um, they kind of hit Roman ingenuity on the head, don't they? 
Ben Evans has lost it, I tell you. He was, he was much better last. I'm going to ask my own questions from now on. Uh, there is quite a lot of cock-based stuff. I won't go on too much about cock-based stuff, but it, uh, my last show, Talking Cock, did a reference something from, I think, from Pompeii, because there's penises all over the place in Pompeii. Uh, there's, there's a thing saying, Hic Habitat Felicitas, uh, with a big penis, which means here lives happiness. Uh, and what's happiness but a... Warm Willie. Yeah. That's basically. You can't spell happiness without penis, can you? That's what I say. So uh, that features in my show. There's uh, there's phallus lamps. There's phallus lamps that are like you can light your way with a penis. And what I quite like is the phallus itself also has its own penis as well. So it's it's a phallus like and then it's got a little penis. Like that's how the pe- that's how phalluses were created. There are presumably some giant muffs walking its around. Tail. It has got a tail as a phallus as well. Right. So it's a phallus with a phallus penis and a phallus tail. And it's also got wings. Yes, it has got so wings. So it can fly and it's got bells on. <laughs> I'm not, this is not a joke. Why were they so obsessed? I mean, it's pathetic. Why were they so obsessed with penises <laughs> in ancient Rome? How do you think I would have got? I'd have done. I don't yes. could have been the biggest star. <laughs> be like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's Richard. Remember Stuart Lee, the bloke who doesn't do any jokes about penises. <laughs> and Richard Herring. Um, why? Why? why what, what was the, all the cocks about? Because I was. I noticed as well the Caecilius. Oh, I was uh, like with many people my age who studied Latin will remember Caecilius because. He was in the books Caecilius Est in Atrium, etc. He was a real. He was a Atrio. <laughs> I got 100% on my Latin exam, and the only mistake I made was I'd spelt there wrong in one of the translations. I put T A G I R. So I used to be very good at it, but I, then I then I let it go. Uh, but I've just noticed that the Caecilius is like a bust of his head. And then it's like a big block, and then there's a little willy coming out the block of right. stone. <laughs> the bronze willy or something. I mean, those people who've done the Cambridge Latin course will have, like you, Richard, got to know Caecilius from book one. And on the, the front cover of the Cambridge Latin course, book one, you have got a picture of this bronze bust of Caecilius. What the the kind of prudes the Cambridge Latin course didn't show you is exactly what you saw, which is what happens underneath this rather elegant bronze bust. So they've got a great marble shaft, if we can call it that, shaft, um, with his name written on it. And the only other thing is uh, uh, some, what we politely call some bronze genitalia. And it's, you know, for me, it absolutely hits the nail on the head about the Romans being, A, sort of just like us, and B, being completely on another planet. Because what you've got here is the idea that if you want to sum up this... Actually, the guy's a banker. He's a Pompeian banker. If you want to sum up the Pompeian banker, you have this other kind of sort of ruggedly realistic face with wart. Then you have nothing else but this kind of plaque in marble, um, and then you have his willy. And it's the idea that somehow... Uh, I, he's going to have to get careful. a video this week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, is, you know, that is what you are all about. And in, fact, in some ways, the Romans actually got it right, I think, yeah. in a way, for men. You know? <laughs> yeah, we're obsessed with willies. I'm wondering if yeah. it's just like the bankers, maybe they screwed up as badly as they did with us and then someone just went around sitting cocks all over their statues <laughs> <laughs> as a kind of statement. They've destroyed the economy. 
Give him a willy. <laughs> I, I think I'm, a, I'm afraid it was a proud boast. And they're everywhere. It's not you know. that. It's a tiny little thing. It's not that proud. It's like a little <laughs> tiny little boy's winky he's got in bronze. It's not that pr- it's not yeah, proud. It's, it's not, he's not using it. <laughs> you know, it's just, is he? I mean, yeah, no, at least just make saying, it like, a, you know, put a big one saying, on there. Well, put some bells on it. <laughs> the, one, the one I like, there's another wonderful um, uh, willy with bells on it. <laughs> which sadly has not come to the British Museum. Um, but it shows you that the Romans were a bit more kind of reflective about willy power than we think. <laughs> because what it is is a sort of pygmy. Um, and he's got this vast cock coming out of him and bells all over everywhere. The end of the cock is turning into a dog, or possibly <laughs> a wolf. And, so, and it's turning back. Don't you see, this is yeah. how I know they did tried to do what you asked me. So it's turning back to him. And in his hand, he has a kind of knife. And he's a, he is trying to cut it off. Yeah. Now, you know, people say, you know, look, you know, Willie's with bells on is one thing. The idea of a kind of slightly hunchbacked pygmy trying to <laughs> amputate his own willy, which is in the process of turning into an animal, yeah. is, is, is stage further. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a werecock. <laughs> That's a great one. And we've all worried about that, right? Eh? <laughs> We're going to, from now on, you're going to wake up and you didn't think you would come to this podcast with Mary Beard and now be scared of your own penis consuming you, didn't you? <laughs> he will be now. Look, he's worried about it. Look. <laughs> Look how worried he is. It's very, so I, this is a non-cock-based question about Pompeii. Uh, Pompeii I is my, it my, 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 <laughs> it's really, it's, Pompeii is my absolute favourite place in the world. I went to it when I was 18 and I looked around and I'm kind of disappointed to discover it has all been rebuilt and stuff. <laughs> it, was bo- it was bombed during the war and also anyway, of course, it all fell down. I kind of believed it was all just as it was, but... You know, it's all showbiz. Uh, but what I don't understand is how you've got, like, Pompeii, which is a quite a big city, and yet you don't really know where most Romans slept. Is that right? That's true. So where did they sleep? And why? how can you not know where they slept? Well, sadly, they don't appear to have bedrooms. Right. right? Or beds, for that matter. I mean, you know, if, if you want to know, if you went to a modern house and you want to say, how many people lived here? And, you know, where did they spend the night? Um, you know, we'd know pretty roughly what the options were. I mean, they might be, you know, might be a kind of, you know, a crappy student bedsit. So the sofa might, in some cases, double for the, for the bed. But otherwise, we'd be going upstairs, and the bedrooms would be painted a different colour, and they'd have beds in them, and you'd only be there at night. Um, Pompeii, it's absolutely clear that if you're rich, you know, you know, let's let's not forget this is in parentheses. You know, the poor slept anywhere they could. Uh, but if you're rich, you you don't have designated sleeping areas. Right. You know, so you have what's called a cubiculum, a cubicle. But that's got a sofa in it. It's got a sofa bed, and it's where you do rather secret business. It's where you might entertain your illicit lover in the afternoon. It's where you might sleep in the evening. Uh, it's where you might sign your will. It's a kind of private-ish sort of space. Now, you go to the Pompeian furniture store, um, which there is one, in, in fact, it's at Herculaneum, a great store of, of furniture, 
carbonised wooden furniture. There is one wooden cradle that is in the British Museum exhibition. Um, but otherwise, there are things that you can lie down on, but you don't know if they're sort of beds. There's no double beds. Um, and there are things that look like sofas. There are things that look like you might recline to eat on them. Um, and there are things where you might have slept. But we, you know, part of the point is, of course, we don't really know. And this is even worse, I guess. Mostly we don't know what happened upstairs in the Pompeian house. Mm -hmm. Now, it, is, it doesn't seem to be very likely that there were loads of bedrooms upstairs. It doesn't seem to be very likely. But you know, these houses, as you say, were, they were destroyed by a volcano. They were bombed by the British in 1943 to smithereens. Um, over 60, probably 90 different hits on Pompeii because we thought the Germans were hiding out there. Also, the ghosts of the ancient Italians might come up and join in the war effort. So that's right, they want to get rid of them entirely. Destroy them that's all. Right. And so, you know, when people go into these houses and you still hear them say, God, isn't that amazing? Even the ceilings still survive. You know, because they're, sorry, sunshine, um, that was a Kirker 1950. Um, we can see there were upper floors because there's stairs going up and they presumably went up to something. But whether that's where a lot of the slaves slept in mm. the attic, who knows? So, you know, I think one of the, one of the big questions, if I, was, if I was advising someone on a new doctoral dissertation subject, you know, where did the Romans sleep? would be quite a good one. Good, so you don't know the answer. <laughs> That's the only reason I got you on, because I couldn't work that out, I couldn't find out. Um, this is quite a disturbing thing. This is about Pompeii, then we'll move on from Pompeii after this. Uh, and this is about penises, but this is about a modern-day <laughs> penis. I said you'd be coming back. Uh, but this is one of the most disturbing things that I found uh, on the talking cock uh, questionnaire. <laughs> that there was a man, I said, where have you put your penis for fun? Uh, it was one of the questions on the Talking Cock questionnaire. And there was a man who obviously got off on displaying his penis in uh, various, like in, the, in churches and big cathedrals and works of art. And then the last one he said, he put his penis in the cup, in the, uh, in the plaster cast hand of one of the victims of. <laughs> do, you think, do you think that's disrespectful today? Because I should explain that they, uh, they, they know they've got all these, there were gaps in the ash basically when they came to excavate and if you fill them with plaster you find out what was there and some of them are loads of bread and animals and some of them are people going, ah no I'm being hit by a volcano. Uh, so yeah, that's quite a good shape to put you out, to get your car, but it isn't actually their hand, their hand's disintegrated, it's just the space where their hand once was. I found that quite disturbing, what do you think? that? He had to move on because of gum. <laughs> he was in an area he shouldn't have been in. Has he well, has you he know, literally. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> that make you look at those... those Because uh, that's an actual like, person, the place where a person died. I think that's not right, is it? Has he written about it, apart from on your question? Well, I don't know. He's out there somewhere. Because, uh, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting. And it's, uh, but there's a long, long history to this, you know. Um, uh, particularly the ancients, Romans, Greeks, they... And of course, they didn't know about doing it with plaster casts of dead bodies. Yeah. But um, they knew damn well that people got off on sculptures, which right. is almost the same. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful stories about the most famous sculptor of Aphrodite uh, the whole world ever seen. Goddess of love on the island of... No, it's not an island. On the, in the town of Knidos, uh, in what's now modern Turkey. Absolutely fantastic famous sculpture of Aphrodite and 
um, a guy falls in love with it, absolutely falls in love with it. And so he, he manages, they lock the temple up at night and he manages to get locked in with her uh, and the guards go away. Um, and uh, so he does what he always wanted to do. He takes her from behind. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know he took her from behind because if you go and look, the original is, I'm afraid, sadly destroyed, not by this man. Um, <laughs> we have lots of copies of it. And um, what Ancient said is that if you go and look, you could see the little stain on the marble <laughs> where he'd left the trace of having his wicked way with her. But... And the kind of boring tool he presumably had to use to create... <laughs> he got his comeuppance. Because... <laughs> he went completely bonkers no. once he'd done it, and he went and threw himself off a cliff. But... Imagine what happened to the bloke who did that to the pan having sex with the goat. <laughs> Hundreds of years later, Romans were going as tourists to the Temple of Aphrodite on Cnidos, uh, going to look for that where the guy had had, had, had done his business. Wow. So, you know, so your guy who wants to yeah. put his cock in the hands of costs, yeah. you know... That's still a, worse, I think. I a, think no, a a at least the statue was never actually a human being, it's just a representation. <laughs> well, she was a goddess, for God's sake. Well, if you had to have sex with a Roman god, which one would you have sex with? <laughs> it's classy, isn't it? It's not a lot classy. <laughs> Well, I think it would all have been pretty brutal. You know, I don't... I mean, I think, you know, part of the joke about putting Pan in the missionary position <laughs> is that, you know, no, ro no bona fide roaming god, you know, did anything as wimpish as the missionary position. I think it was... You know, they were always disguised as bulls and, you know, um, all showers of rain and gold. I mean, showers of gold. And, um, and taking innocent young ladies. So, well, I don't know. I think I'd take Pam because at least you'd know where you were with him. <laughs> you know, you know, what you see is what you get. That's it. You know, Jupiter. Well, you wouldn't know if the you know if the bull that you were kind of charmingly stroking in the nearby field was suddenly going to whisk you away to his love nest. So you know, it's all a bit deceptive. No, I think you know Pan is straight up and down sex. Good. <laughs> you might get going involved. Right. We'll move on. We'll move on to. Uh, well, actually, you met the Queen this week. I did, I did meet the Queen. How did, how did that go? Well, um, it was very moving. How could you tell? I don't know. Um, but it was it was very funny for me because I'm a um, you know I'm a, a, a basic Republican, you know, right. a basic Republican, and I went to the opening of the BBC New HQ which looks absolutely gorgeous from the outside, absolutely gorgeous. And I thought, oh God, I'm, you know, I got an invite. I'm marking a hell of a lot of exams this week. I'm so, you know, I'm so knackered. You know, why don't I go, right? Um, so I turn up at the BBC HQ with my little invite. Um, I hadn't thought a minute about it really, apart from that I was going to go and there'd no doubt be, you know, a bit of a nice piss up and, and you know, it, it would be fun, you know, it'd be different. <laughs> Um, and I knew that something different was going to happen when, as soon as I walked in through the BBC door, uh, a very nice girl came up and said, Ah, oh, Mary, come to the green room. And I thought, why do I need to go to the green room? And then she said, you do know, don't you, that you're, you're in the line-up to meet the Queen? And I thought, no, but I thought I'd better say yes, because <laughs> it would look a bit silly to say no. Um, and, I, and then I thought, 
I'm glad I didn't know because otherwise I'd have spent ages deciding what shoes to put on and you know I'd have washed my hair and done a lot of other things that you know even Republicans do when they meet the Queen because they suddenly get a kind of touch of nervousness uh, and it was great you know um, we were in a, a really motley crew lineup which included me, Bruce Forsyth, <laughs> David Dimbleby, Jenny Agatha, Claudia Winkleman, and um, Tess Daly. So it was the Strictly <laughs> team. And there was the kind of, it was meant to represent um, the different faces of BBC telly. The three different faces, dancing, pointing at Romans, yeah, and, and news, that's right. Um, <laughs> and of course, what's, what really happens is that, you know, it's, it's as I said on my blog actually, it's a bit like getting stuck in a lift with people you know that although uh, you know I, there's no other circumstance in which I would have been for almost two hours in the company of Bruce Forsyth <laughs> um, except you know the, the possibility of it being a lift and so it becomes terribly terribly memorable it becomes really you know because you think this is just weird you know I'm supposed to be um, marking exam questions about you know Rome's battle with Carthage and here I am sitting in the bowels of the BBC with Bruce Forsyth and his and his much younger wife um, and and so you, not that much younger <laughs> all right it's not so far oh no sorry this oh. is fine one of the rare as you can see that's the news story yes, Mary Beard accuses Bruce Forsyth yeah don't say um, it <laughs> really funny because you're sitting there all you're doing is waiting for this charming old lady aged 87 who's probably thinking about what's happening to her poor old husband you know to walk along and she does her bit wonderfully and uh, she holds out this glo beautifully gloved hand and you take it and you think I must not curtsy you know don't curtsy beard um, you know otherwise you, you know you're really letting the side down uh, uh, and you think you come away and all your reactions are pre-programmed you know, all the republicanism goes out the window and you go, oh god she was so nice and didn't she look small and all those other things that you think so uh, it was it it was Strangely moving, and it was strangely revealing of one's own hypocrisy. <laughs> Are you, have you got an OBE though? You've got an OBE as well. I've, I, I have. That's not very Republican, is it? That's not very Republican. I've got, but I've got another. I've got, I've got an excuse for that one too. I've got an excuse. I didn't. I did actually sit and think: Should I do this? You know, order the British Empire. You know, no, I mean, it's not just Republicanism. That's kind of imperialism yeah. too, kind of fighting here. And I said to a friend of mine who's got something much grander than that, um, I said, "Look, I'm thinking of turning this down." And he said, "If you can turn it down, forget about it, and never get." to be the kind of person who, oh, at the end of the party, after too much Pinot Grigio, <laughs> says, well, of course, I turned an OBE down, <laughs> then turn it down. But if you get a blab, accept it, because it's easier to forget about it that way. Mm. How not, about not, that? Not a good enough excuse. <laughs> oh, okay. I would have I become the, the refuse, I mean, is it even, actually refusing an OB isn't that great, is it? I mean, you know, refusing, you know, something really, you know, refusing a peerage. You could have punched the Queen in the face this week. That's, that's, that would have been, just going, yes, man, poof. And of course, that the, same, been the same, I haven't 
gone to get it yet. The okay. same thing will happen. And, you know, I shall, you know, I've got the instructions and I shall put my fascinator on. I've never, I haven't had a fascinator before. It, sounds, it seems better than a hat. And I shall go, part of me thinking, God, this is a load of flummery deference. Oh, I hate it. It's like watching the, you know, the, the BBC seven-hour coronation broadcast from 1953, you know, with them all saying, these are the, you know, the princesses of the blood royal, etc., coming out. You think, oh, you know, I'm going mad to listen to this. And then you think, oh, God, doesn't he look nice? And, you, know, you know, in the case of the 53, isn't that, you know, Queen of Tonga, great. <laughs> so, you know, and I think it's either hypocrisy or it's kind of honesty on yeah. my part. And I it like is... to think of it as honesty. Well, I can't tell you whether I've been offered one or not, uh, because I... Uh... <laughs> After I said that, you certainly yeah. don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think it's unlikely. Especially now I've just said I'd punch the Queen in the face. <laughs> yeah, the Alex said it, boom, hey! Um, Look, if they could offer one to me, mate, they certainly <laughs> offer one to you. Even one to Jonathan Ross, he was the first OBE we had on. I can believe they gave it off Jonathan Ross. If Jonathan Ross can get one, that. Anybody. What's the point? What's the point <laughs> of having <laughs> <laughs> so look, I want to talk to you a bit about uh, all the kind of furore about you daring to go on TV uh, looking like I, you look. That's a, a, a terrible bus, yes. daring <laughs> yeah. thing. Well, it kind of is. It, it's all unbelievable, actually. I, I'm very cross about uh, everything that happened. It sort of started with anus asshole gill, as I quote. That's what the AA stands for. The gill start, stands for gash intercourse labia lavatory. That's what it stands for. <laughs> who I think was critical of the idea that anyone could go on TV with grey hair or not have, have to look in a certain way. Now, what makes me very angry about it is that, like, in the 1970s, uh, you know, everywhere, if you go back and look at programmes there, they had the most freakish-looking people you've ever seen. You know, just ridiculous, sort of barely human being. Or they'd be academics and, you know, really strange guys on. And if someone came on TV to present, like, a serious programme and they were good-looking, everyone would laugh, going, this is pathetic. They just put a pretty person who doesn't know what they're doing in order to, you know, like a model-looking person to do this. And that would be the joke. And it's turned around so, to such an extent that an expert on a subject can't go on TV without being criticised for, for the way they, that they choose to look, which is kind of outrageous. No, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was actually giving a lecture in America when this came, when this review of Gill came out. And, you know... I, you know, Gil got form where I was concerned, so I knew it was going to be hostile. And I remember sitting in the hotel room waiting, waiting to be able to get it online. And when it said, she looks as if she should be on the undateables, I thought, Christ, you know? He is a very good-looking man, though, yeah, I have to say. But he, he sets the, the standard very high on he good does. looks, so it's, no, you know, right. it's fair enough. It's that sort of... Um, kind of orange skin that he has. Yeah. That is so, I mean, I should, so I should really not be arguing against this because obviously it's in my interest that extremely good-looking people get to go on TV. But <laughs> I am too, I'm too good-looking to go on TV. That's the reason I'm not actually I'm too sexy to go on TV. Well, but, uh, when he shot a baboomed yeah. AA Guild to find out what it feels like to kill a man. Yes, Which is kind of weird on two levels, because A, you're killing a, a primate, not a man anyway, and B, why do you want to find out? It's like Nick, when Nick Ross says, yeah, well, yeah, if someone showed me some child pornography, I'd have a look just to see what all the fuss was about. That's what he says. It's the same thing as that, isn't it? Yeah, I'd love to know what it's like to kill a human being. I imagine it's pretty horrible. So yeah, he's a, he's a yeah. horrible man, but well, we you'd expect him, better... Put him with Pan and the Goat, really, I think. <laughs> you'd expect better of a... Of, of a of a journalist, but a few journalists joined on that kind of bandwagon, and then, then 
you got into uh, when you're on question time they, there was a lot of you googled yeah. yourself presumably yeah, to find this yeah. yeah there's two stages to this first of all you know Jill actually gets I was quite encouraged because um, most of the country or at least the country that kind of put its head above the parapet um, said Gil was absolutely bloody stupid and I thought it was it was really great. There was a little article in the Daily Mail, and I thought the Daily Mail might have really come out the other way. Uh, but you know, for once, under the line on the internet version, there were loads of people saying how stupid we want to see people like Beard on the telly. You know, they you know, God knows what they think of my political views, but it, as far as I looked, it was fine. And I thought, well, look, what's going on here is actually. Most of these readers look like me, you know, and most women of 58 without a lot of treatment look more or less like me. And most women over the age of 50 have grey hair, get it, you know, and that's, uh, and that seemed, you know, that seemed quite good and everything went quiet for a bit. And then there was, you know, you, you reach, after the question time appearance, there was this kind of great, uh, great leap forward in misogynistic terms. Because, you know, in the end, I now look at Gil and I think he's a sort of silly boy and, you know, I'd like to take him out to lunch and, and put him right and sort of smack his bottom <laughs> and say, oh, look, you know, just just think, you know, just what does David Starkey look like, you know, and why, why does that not matter? Um, but at least I now think, well, look, Gil... Silly boy, he signs the articles, you know who he is. If you want to go around and say, look, mate, you shouldn't do that, you know where he lives. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where he lives. Barry's found out. That's like I'd be terrified to be A.A. Gill. <laughs> when you get to mad internet trolling, yeah. you get to a whole, you know, it's, a, it's 50 steps beyond Gill in terms of, you know, extraordinary misogyny and I think what was very odd about the question time backlash was quite how difficult it is to get across to people what these internet trollers against me and against a lot of other people on the site on don't start me off what they were actually saying because you can't go on the BBC and say what they said yeah. So you have to say, you know, things terribly periphrastic things like, you know, um, he, he talked uh, about the size of my private parts, you know, and actually he's saying, you know, you've got a cunt the size of a marrow or whatever. You know. now, if you try to do that even on Woman's Hour, they say, <laughs> they say, well, do you think we could put it slightly differently? And. And if I hadn't had my own blog, I couldn't even have got it into a newspaper. Luckily, um, you know, I have a blog on the Times Literary Supplement site, which nobody really monitors. So they didn't notice that I put on it uh, a picture from this website of my face with labia superimposed. Um, because, you know, I've got a very sort of modest little blog which talks usually about classical things and, you know, Don's life. And you know, they're not looking for kind of nasty bits of porn on it. And, and actually loads of people went to it and they saw the kind of stuff yeah. that this is. And, and I suddenly realised that, you know, I, you know, I'm not a great sort of admirer of Louise Mensch. 
But, <laughs> but when she started moaning about what she got on the web, I had found myself thinking, oh, God, look, darling, you know, if you, you know, if you put yourself about and you look like that, then you've got to take the rough with the smooth. Mm. And now I see that what, what Mensch was presumably getting was much the same kind of really, you know, vile stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was, in a, in a funny way, it was terribly easy to combat it because it was so obvious what you should do. I mean, there were some people, and there still are people who say, look, if you get really, really, really attacked on the internet, um, then just shut the fuck up, basically, because it will only draw attention to it if you open your mouth. But I think, you know, women have been told to shut the fuck up about what people say of them, you know, for thousands of years. And it was just so easy to say, and it... And it's always easier if you're my age than if you're 25, because you know, some young women are getting this, a lot of young women are getting this too, to say, look, you know, can we please just hang on a minute and can somebody explain to me why the putative size of my vagina might have anything whatsoever to do with my views on immigration? <laughs> it just doesn't. No, you know, it's... Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, I think I might, you know, I, I think at the time I was on Twitter with the internet, I, thought, I was admiring what you're doing, but I was thinking, God, this could really, you know, I was one of those people thinking, this could just be terrible, maybe you should just, you know, shut up about it. But then actually it was kind of amazing, because you push, and I'm, I'm very, I, I always kind of try and rile these people a bit more myself, but I never get anything, I never get anything as bad as that. But it was incredible that it, it did create enough of a... A fuss to, to get the site shut down, yeah. and uh, you know that doesn't stop the problem, obviously, uh, in the long term. But it's kind of it is an amazing thing it did. It was a very important thing to do, and I, and I think it's the same. You know, in the nineteen seventies, people were allowed to be racist and would have died if they'd had the internet. There would have been awful, awful racial things put up that people wouldn't accept now. So it's uh, it, you know it, it is a very important battle to fight. So it's kind of amazing uh, that you you achieve managed to defeat those awful. Idiots, but there we go. Let's. I got a. I also got a long letter of apology from the guy who ran the site. How did you? Um, you know how sincere I don't know, but yeah, it um, it made me feel it was it was, it was good for me because um, you know I don't mind talking about it now, but it did stop. You know it being a sort of poster girl of troll victims over fifty <laughs> got to be a bit time consuming for a while, um, and actually not just the site coming down but also the apology saying I am sorry this was unacceptable yeah um allowed me to say to people okay that you know we're moving on now folks um and to kind of claim some sort of Oh, I was going to say the word closure, but you know (laughs) I, I just you know I could have gone on talking about trolling for the rest of my life um, and you know how I beat them, and, and it was it was good to being given uh, you know, by as I say I don't know if it's a sincere letter or not, um, but a way out of that. And so now when I talk about it, it's in the you know it's not me now, it's in the past. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm sure there are people you know saying completely ghastly things about me on the web, and you know people are going to say ghastly things about people on the web, and as long as they got the grace in the end to apologise. <laughs> You know, maybe that's... You know, I've said stupid things on Twitter, you know... I've never done that. Not not like you, not like you. You know, and you just got to learn to say, um, sorry, chaps, that wasn't... I shouldn't have said that. 
Well, freedom of speech is all good and well and good, but you know, sometimes you just have to think about whether something's worth saying. <laughs> just because you're allowed to say it doesn't mean you should. But let's move on and ask a very important question that I mustn't let you go without answering. If you had to choose between having a hand made out of ham... Or, I've read about this yeah. question. I should have you should be very well prepared. I then. should have prepared uh, the answer. Uh, I didn't think you'd be so predictable as to uh, oh, do yeah. it. You don't know me very well. I'm going to throw in a curve, I'm not. Uh, it's an important question, it's a perfect question. I tried to mess around with it, you can't mess around with it. You've either got a hand made out of ham or an armpit that dispenses sun cream. Enough sun cream to cater for you and maybe one member of your family. For, uh, fraternity? For, no, for the year. Well, yeah, we're for, fraternity for the year. So we get you through a year and then there'll be another supply the next year. But you couldn't go, you know, opening up a sun cream factory. And just filling up bottles. So the hand, you can eat the hand ham, but the, the hand of ham, but uh, it'll grow back, but it'll take about a month if you ate the whole thing, so it's like a snack. But you can nibble at it, just nibble a bit of it, and then it would grow back reasonably quickly. Which of those two things would you prefer? The classicist Mary Beard. <laughs> well, as a, as a classicist, yeah. um, this is obviously a professional answer. Um, uh, we classicists have partly become classicists because unless we are so unfortunate as to work on Roman Britain or Roman Germany yeah. it does tend to take us to sunny Mediterranean uh, climes yeah. doesn't it yeah, so um, the ham hand you've got the ham hand to <laughs> chew on to chew on while it was sunny <laughs> no sorry carry on so <laughs> So I think we'll take the sun cream yeah. uh, as, uh, it's also, it's two things, it's, it, for me, it signals work, yeah, it signals tramping around the yeah. ruins of Pompeii, getting a bit hot, you know, and then looking at yourself in the mirror and thinking, God, I wish I had a bit of sunscreen, it would have been a bit better. <laughs> uh, but it also is a kind of, it's that image of something that I never do, but I always kind of, I close my eyes and I think of my dream holiday. And my dream holiday is nowhere near a sodding ruin, I have to tell you. <laughs> you know, my dream holiday is a lovely swimming pool in a discreetly upmarket hotel, very discreet, um, uh, with a... Uh, the um, Camparis or the Negronis <laughs> at hand mm -hmm. and the blissful sun. Now, I never do this, oh, but somehow, somehow the the sun cream would kind of make that seem a more urgent possibility. Also, oh, if you're doing archaeology and stuff with a ham hand, it would get all <laughs> dirt and stuff on it. Coprolites should get on it, wouldn't you? That would be nice. Oh, worse than coprolites. <laughs> coprolites. There are like archaeologists who's just. Study ancient shit. Yeah, just yes, coprolite analysts. Yes. In fact, one of the, the biggest advances recently in the study of Herculaneum has been the intimate analysis of the contents of a Herculaneum sewer. Mm. I mean, they look quite literally, not just a sewer, not a kind of, you know, dirty rainwater, but the um, effluent from a multi-storey block lose coming down over about, no doubt, 10 years. <laughs> From which, let me tell you, mm. we can 
100% certainly say that although everybody always says that the Romans wiped their bums with sponges on sticks, uh, in the sewer there is no sign of sponge. Um, There is lots and lots of rag bits. So I think we have to assume that the Romans sometimes use sponges on sticks, but maybe they just kept the, Maybe they just kept it by the toilet and just rinsed out in the, <laughs> in, the, in the bowl, and then just reused yeah, but, it. Oh, again. But some bit of sponge would have gone down the loo, <laughs> wouldn't it? Especially <laughs> natural sponge, I could say. And there's another important emergence question. I think you might, because you, you know, because you are hanging around in spooky places a lot. The, <laughs> have you ever seen a ghost? Have you been? In, well, anywhere, but, you know, in have Pompeii. You? No, because they don't exist. But have you? <laughs> have you? And that's not the question, is it? It's have you ever seen one? That's the question. I asked my son what to say to that question. <laughs> and I've just given the answer. Have you? Know, <laughs> have you? When, you? when you've seen a ghost, mate, I'll come and tell you about mine. All right. Have you ever seen a Bigfoot when you've been around? <laughs> <laughs> this is the emergency. Can I ask everyone this? <laughs> an emergency question there's no need you know but I just thought you know, if you had that might get us in the papers if, again if right? I, it's really on the news again if I were to say yes would that get in the news uh, if you definitely if you had any photographic evidence uh, yeah. well it you might, never do do you it may be you in Pompeii was there, is there any large footprints in Pompeii oh. that could have been a Sasquatch of some kind well, there always is <laughs> there, always, there is. always is but you'd have to be barking to believe it there always is Right, well, I think we are nearly at the end of our fantastic oh, conversation. No. Uh, what, have you got, what have you got coming up? You've got doing another book? Um, I am doing a book. I've just about finished a book on Roman laughter. Wow, what's the best Roman joke that you know? This is going to be deeply disappointing. It's got to be really good, because we're closing now, so this has got to be something they'll make. It's got to be bigger than the thing about saying... I will, I will tell you one Roman joke which is yeah. not bad, okay. right? It's um, uh, a man uh, goes and it was going to buy some honey. He sees a man selling honey in the market and he goes over and says, oh, that looks like good honey. Can I, um, can I taste it? And the guy says, oh, yes. He's, God, that's really good honey. I, I'll take that. And the guy who's selling it says, well, it is really good honey. It tastes good. And I, I wouldn't be selling it if that mouse hadn't gone and died in it. <laughs> <laughs> Tough crowd. Then I would have killed Thank the major Roman. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the fantastic Mary Beard. You've been listening to Richard Herring's Let's Sky Theatre podcast with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Mary Beard. The music was by Pest, thanks to Orange Mark and everyone at the British Comedy Guide, and to Chris Evans, not that one, and everyone from GoFasterStripe.com. It was produced by Ben Walker. It is a fuzz and sky potato production and go faster stripe production for the internet. How do you like them sky potatoes? Not very much. Thanks for listening to Richard Chang's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. This is an independent production. We're not making any money from any broadcaster or big business. Uh, So we are relying on you slightly to help us with future endeavours. So if you've enjoyed this and want to contribute, you can go and buy the video. Uh, versions at uh, www.gofasterstripe.com slash podcasts. You can get the whole series for £15 or an individual episode for just £3.50. If everyone who listened just bought one episode, 
uh, we'd certainly be able to do some very exciting comedy projects in the future. That money will go back into other ideas we've got and keep the Leicester Square Theatre podcasts going. If you don't want to do that, you could always go to gofasterstripe.com and buy one of my DVDs or books or buy a ticket to see my show, uh, We're All Gonna Die, which is going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe at the Pleasance Beyond uh, all the way through August, or Richard Tanning's Edinburgh Fringe podcast, which is a very similar thing, uh, but daily at the stand at 2.10 in the afternoon. Uh, you can support us just by telling your friends about this podcast or uh, any of Ben, the producer's other podcasts, Do the Right Thing, Pappy's Flat Share, Slam Down, both very well worth a listen. That's another way to spread the love if you can't afford to pay any money for it. But uh, it'd be lovely if you wanted to. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.